Amen. You may be seated. You guys sounded awesome worshiping the Lord this morning. I love to hear you praising. I want to just uh, say a special thank you to our drummer. Um, you are all stomping and clapping, and as is prone to happen with a congregation of any size, I love you, it has to be said, you are clapping out of time, right? <laughs> and uh, that's okay, that's okay, we want to encourage you to worship, but uh, it made things difficult for our drummer, and uh, she's doing a fantastic job, so I just want you to give a warm, a warm hand for her. <laughs> it's a joy to begin discipling, even at a young age, a tender young age, getting our kids involved with the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given them, and using them to serve in the church. Uh, with that said, let's, let's turn to Romans, would you? Open your Bibles in, this morning. Uh, turn with me in your, in your copy of God's Scripture uh, to Romans chapter 1. We begin what will be an epic journey through the book of Romans. Um, just a profound letter. I've always been intimidated by, by this particular book. There are a lot of uh, complex themes and a lot of complex ideas that are being woven by the Apostle Paul throughout the entire letter, and uh, I've never felt uh, as a pastor or a preacher ready to tackle this book. And so you're sitting there and you're hearing me say all of this, and you're probably thinking, oh, so you feel ready for it now. Well, no, to be perfectly honest, I don't. But I'll tell you this much. I started in a couple of, a couple of months ago now just reading and praying and thinking through it and once again, just in this particular passage of Scripture, this, this particular letter, God just began to cause joy to overflow in my heart. And um, again, I sat down this week to prepare the message for this morning, and again, I'm thinking, oh Lord, I need your help. There's, I don't know how I'm going to preach through this whole book, but uh, you just meet him there in that struggle, and it's awesome. <laughs> so I had nothing but joy. So this morning we begin, and I am filled with happiness at this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Let's just read, and then as is our custom, let's just pause for a moment, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text. The gospel is not something that can be merely intellectually perceived. It is something which your, the, the eyes of your heart have to be opened by the Holy Spirit in order to truly, truly grasp the beauty of what is there. And that's what we really need to pray for this morning, is that the Holy Spirit would help us. So let's just read this, uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to read all the way to verse 7. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, just let that sink in for a second. Let's pray. Father, you send us greetings. 
across the sands of time from 2,000 years ago through the hand of Paul writing on a piece of papyrus, a piece of parchment. You say to us here and now, grace and peace. And we say thank you. It doesn't really feel that way, if I could be perfectly candid with you. Oh, Heavenly Father, it, it feels like we are more at war as a society and within the world. We feel more at war than we've ever been. All these things come to pass according to your plan. We welcome them and we rest in you, knowing that you are the sovereign one who controls all things. This morning, Lord, as we look at your word, I just ask you, God, would you help us to believe? Would you strengthen us and take away our fears and our anxieties? And would you lift our eyes from the things of this world to heaven, to you, to your son? Help us to be strengthened in our faith this morning as we meditate and ponder once again the greatest news, the good news, the best news that has ever been told, that you love us and that you sent your son to die for us. Do this work in our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A number of weeks ago, we were having a men's Bible study. We were all here in the fellowship hall downstairs, gathered on a Tuesday night, and we were working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we came to that famous chapter, Mark 13, which is the Olivet Discourse. It's the end times. Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, tell us what will be the sign of your coming. And given all the tension that has happened in our society and all the debates that we've had over the last year and a half regarding the propriety of government intervention and what many of us consider to be the authoritarian work of government in our lives, this was an eschatological discussion for the ages. We had present there multiple different views. We had premillennial, we had postmillennial, we had amillennial. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you're looking at me and you're like, I don't know what any of that means. Well, that's okay. Uh, we also had at that table what you might call uh, panmillennials. That is, they're just waiting to see how it all pans out. They're not sure what is the uh, end result of all of these things going to be. We had a really great discussion. But I come this morning to the book of Romans and I want to open with this thought for you. In a number of years, be it a hundred years or twenty years or a thousand years, we will know everything there is to know about eschatology, about end times. In a number of years, all the debates about whether we should be premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial will be settled because we will see how it all panned out. And everything that there is to know about the end of the world and the consummation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, all of that will be fully understood. But after we have been in heaven for an eternity of eternities, after we have been in heaven, after we have been with Jesus, after we've been God the Father for a billion trillion years, we will still be struggling to understand in the fullness of its depth the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message of God's love for his people. And you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, I've heard it. It's basic. It's the sort of the foundational thing everybody needs to hear in order to become a Christian. 
That's true. It's absolutely true. But if you're dismissing this gospel because of your familiarity with it, I want to challenge you this morning to think that you're not as familiar with it as you think you are. If you think you fully grasp everything there is to grasp in this message, if you think you have completely got the gospel nailed down and packaged and it's just tucked away in your box and you know it and that's it, enough said, well, I'm afraid to tell you there's so much more to be said. I myself will take probably the next five to seven years saying quite a bit more about it. Not me, but the book of Romans. And even at that, we will not have said everything that will be ever be said about this message. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. In doing so, God, deity, took on flesh. God, the infinite one, became a man like you and me and died, something which deity could never do. And he died doing something else which deity could never do, bearing sins, bearing sins as the man who was fully man and fully God, dying in our place and being raised, being raised to eternal life, never to die again, and more importantly, raising all those from the grave who would hope in him. Paul has never been to Rome. He is, in this particular letter, writing from the city of Corinth. He is hoping to travel to Rome. He wants to go by way of Rome further out than anyone has ever gone before with the gospel. He is hoping to go by way of Rome as a waypoint all the way to Spain in order to take the gospel to Spain. But before he comes to Rome, he writes this letter. He lays it out for them. What is the gospel? And though Paul has written other letters to other churches, including Galatians, including First and Second Corinthians, this letter was chosen by the church to come first in the canon that is our collection of scriptures in terms of arrangement. This letter was chosen to come first because this is the clear and definitive presentation of the gospel in the word of God. Every other letter will address corrections and will address abuses that take place in Christianity that are fundamentally departures from this understanding of the gospel, but this is the gospel, and Paul wants to lay it out for the church at Rome before he arrives, and so he begins, and what you see here, as we've already read, in Romans chapter 1, he introduces himself, Paul, he's writing a letter, and so he says, I am Paul, an apostle, and he goes on to explain what it means to be an apostle, he says he's called to be an apostle, a servant, a proper understanding of that word is a slave, a slave to what? He says, I'm a slave to the gospel. Now, many of our uh, elementary students at the academy, or at this point, our, our upper grade level students are being taught to write letters, to being taught to write various essays and various compositions. And one of the questions that we are asked from time to time is, well, why do I have to write an introduction? Why do I have to write a conclusion? And of course, we say to them, as any teacher does, because I told you so. <laughs> now, for those of you young, young elementary students who are here today who have wondered why, the reason is that we are called by God to organize our thoughts and to communicate in an orderly manner where we don't go off into, tra into rabbit trails, we don't go off into tangents, and we find in the Bible... God does this. 
Sure, Paul is writing the letter of Romans, but we know that it's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit working through Paul. And what we find here in the letter of Romans is an introduction where he is going to briefly introduce everything he's about to talk about. But you know what else we find in the letter of Romans? We find a conclusion. In fact, the conclusion that we find in Romans chapter 16 echoes many of the same themes that Paul introduces here at the beginning, which means what Paul says here at the beginning, he's going to take the next 16 chapters to really expound upon it, to elaborate upon it, to dissect it, to discuss it, to present it. Look with me. Look what he says here. He says in verse 2, concerning the gospel, which God promised beforehand through the prophets, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now just hold that paragraph in your head and flip with me to Romans chapter 16. Go all the way to the end of the book. And as you're holding that an introductory paragraph in your head, see if this doesn't sound familiar. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 25, Now, Paul concludes his letter to him, God the Father, to him who is able to, look at this, strengthen you, strengthen your faith according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So he's talking about the prophets and the scriptures. He said that in the introduction. He's saying it again now in the conclusion. But has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, referencing that this all comes about by the will and the decree of God, to bring about, look at this, the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have prophetic writings. We have command of God the Father. We have Jesus Christ, the centerpiece of it all. And of course, the obedience of faith. He concludes as he begins the idea here, if we take the introduction and the conclusion together, if we look at that opening line from the conclusion, what Paul is trying to do then throughout these next 16 chapters is to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith, to make us stronger as Christians, that comes about through the preaching of the gospel, not through eschatological debates, as important and as wonderful as they are. And in a number of years, those of you who debated with me, you'll know I'm right, okay? No, 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 I only tease. We will be made strong through the gospel. Now, the gospel does promise us that Christ returns. We must hold that truth rock-solid concrete. But it isn't discussions about when Christ will return or how Christ will return that strengthens us. It is the knowledge that he has come and has already set us free. And dwelling on that and meditating on that and rejoicing in that, which brings strength. So, flipping back to chapter 1, let's take a look, shall we? 
Chapter 1, Paul, again, writing, to this, writing this, this letter to the church at Rome, he says, Paul, and the ESV will translate it a servant. We're going to look at this more in depth next week. The Greek word here is slave. Paul is calling himself a slave. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, right there, the way that the ESV translates that, it's a genitive. I don't want to get too specific in terms of the grammar, but this can be understood two ways. And I would say to you that Paul's intention here is that we would receive it both of the possible ways that it could be interpreted. It could be interpreted the gospel from God, the gospel which has God as its source. In other words, God sends forth this good news. God sends it forth. The other way it could be translated, which some translations will render it, is the gospel about God, the gospel which tells us about the Father. And I went blind, nearly blind this week, reading commentaries, debating back and forth which one is the correct way to render this particular genitive. And you know what I, what I concluded and what I think we all should conclude? Both are completely correct. Paul's intention here, particularly as we work our way through this introduction today and in the weeks ahead, is for us to understand that God initiated this good news, that he is the source of it, that it goes forth from God the Father, and that in the sending forth of this good news, it tells us about the Father. It is good news regarding God. And I think that that understanding is further further emphasized and in fact reinforced or confirmed by the very next phrase. In verse 2, he says, which he promised, God the Father promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God told us that he was going to save us before he sent his son to do the hard, nitty-gritty work of atonement, saving us on the cross. He told us beforehand that he was going to do it before he did it. You and I, as it says in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity on our hearts. So in our fallen state, we are always in this perpetual place of wondering about the universe. What has come before time? What will be after time? These are things which constantly crowd in on our imagination, which constantly press in on our thoughts. And that is because God made us that way. For millennia, the human imagination has been groping after the darkness of time, trying to, be, to peer behind the curtain of our lives. Sometimes it's worded certain ways, it's expressed in certain phrases, we sometimes ask the question, you know, what is the meaning of life or what is the secret of life? And, and when we pose those types of questions, what we're really trying to get at is what's behind it all. We're trying to look behind the curtain. And it's quite silly that we spend so much time to try to see what's behind it. Because all we have to do is listen. And God is telling us that behind it all is God the Father. The very fact that we are constantly straining and striving with our imaginations and various scientific experiments or different mythologies and different uh, fairy tales to try to wrap our intellect around this idea, what is behind it all? What is the secret of life? What's behind time? What is it that we are looking for? Behind all of this, time and time again, we see that the word of God has been speaking to us, but we just keep ignoring it and refusing to listen to it. Paul says that he is called to be an apostle for the gospel, which God has been speaking forth through his holy prophets 
from the very beginning of time. He's been telling us about it. You don't have to flip there, but, but just listen. In the scriptures, God makes the statement in the prophet Isaiah. He says, who is a God like me? Making known the end from the beginning. He said, in effect, what he's saying to the prophet is there's nobody out there. There's no other deity. There's no other God. And he says, if you want to really test this, the way you can test it is just to ask the question, what other deity, what other God is out there that is letting you know exactly how it's all going to end and exactly how it's all going to come to pass in the final days? Who is saying these things and making these things known from the beginning? The idea that God is trying to impress upon us when he presents it to us that way is that as the true God, he is transcendent. He is above it all. He is not within time. He is the author of time. He is not constrained by the events of human history. He is the one directing human history, and he has appointed how it will all unfold, how it will all come to an end, and he's been telling us this from the beginning. Theologians encounter this, and they say to themselves, yeah, God is transcendent. He is totally different than us. He's mysterious. He's above it all. And what's really sad is that the conclusion that they draw from that is that because God is so transcendent, they come to this erroneous idea that he must be so far removed from us that we can't possibly understand him. Now, don't misunderstand me. The scriptures say to us that God's ways are way higher than our ways and his thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. And it is true, it is true that we could never think on a level equal to or rivaling that on which God thinks. In that sense, he absolutely is way above us. Nevertheless, it is a mistake. The conclusion that many theologians and indeed some pastors come to. John Frame in his Doctrine of God book on page 110 summarizes, after taking like 50, 60 pages to sample all of the various different theologians that talk about the transcendence of God, summarizes it this way. Many people think that God is so far above us, so very different from anything on earth, that we can say nothing, at least nothing positive about him. And what he means by that expression is not that we, ha- we can only say bad things about God, simply that we cannot make any positive affirmations about him. We can't conclusively say something. We can't assert some truth about him. That's what John Frame is saying that many theologians are saying. John Frame isn't saying this, but this is what many, many scholars are saying. He goes on, For though the term transcendent itself is not found within the Bible, it is a term coined by theologians as a convenient way of grouping together certain biblical ideas. Scripture often speaks of God as exalted. It says that he dwells in the heavens above, even above the heavens, that he is enthroned on high, indeed that he is the most high. On and on he goes. And then he concludes, Therefore, many theologians think that transcendence is a convenient term to summarize that God is so far above us that he transcends our language so that anything we might say about him is utterly inadequate and fails to describe him. Well, I've got good news. Though it might be true that left to our own devices, we would be at a complete loss to describe God. God doesn't leave us to our own devices. God reveals himself and he speaks to us. Though it is true that God is so high and far above us that none of us in our own strength could wrap our minds around him, 
He doesn't leave it to us to try to aspire to his heights. He comes down and he speaks. The gospel is the good news from God, and in the sense that the gospel is the good news from God, it is about God because God is a speaking God who wants to talk to us. God is a God who likes to speak to his people. That's why it says in the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word. That is the thing which is spoken forth from God. It says the word was with God, and indeed the word was God. Our God is described in the scriptures as being a speaking God, a God who wants to be known, a God who takes great pains to reveal himself to us. Indeed, he has a word, and this word is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, who is called the word of God, comes forth as the ultimate revelation from God to make God known to us. A lot of people, when they look at Jesus, they think Jesus is wonderful. He is full of grace and mercy, and he goes to the cross, and he dies for us. And we look at Jesus, but I fear that some of us, in looking at Jesus, still harbor some sort of anxiety or trepidation about God the Father behind this Jesus. In talking with Christians, sometimes you get the impression that it's as though Jesus has come to try and suck up all of the room in in the frame of the picture so that you can't see behind him to that angry, sort of vengeful, wrathful God who stands behind him. And while some Christians think, okay, Jesus loves me, but I'm not sure about the Heavenly Father, the reality is, is that God has been trying to speak to us from day one of his love for us, and despite our sin and rebellion, first put on display in the garden with Adam and Eve, despite that, time and again, he continues to speak to us that he is going to save us. It's striking to me that time and again, we tend to think such hard, mean, blasphemous thoughts about God when he has been perfectly clear talking to us about his love for us and his will to save us in Christ Jesus from day one. This is good news. You talk to any other person of any other type of spirituality or faith, you say, tell me about your God. Does he speak to you? Indeed, many people will claim that their deities and their various gods speak to them. But then the question is, what good word does he have for you? And if you look at all of the different religions in the world, they all insist that in order for you to experience some degree of salvation, there is something you must do. In Christianity, God has been speaking to us, and from the beginning, he has been telling us that there is a king who will conquer all. He will save. There is nothing you and I need to do other than place our hope and our confidence. And this is a radical difference in the sense that with any other deity, they are not talking deities. Some of them are talking, and we cringe at what they say. Anybody here ever read the Quran? It's cringeworthy, but our God speaks, and what he says is beautiful, and what he promises is salvation, a salvation that doesn't rest on us, but rests on him. So, how does this come to pass? Well, verse 3 tells us, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. 
And this is where the mystery gets really profound. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Just flip over to Philippians chapter 2 and listen to what Paul says. I think that when it comes to Jesus Christ being born in the flesh, this is the, perhaps the most illuminating passage in Scripture. Beginning in verse 6, talking about Jesus Christ, says Christ Jesus who, this is Philippians 2, 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being, bound, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God has so highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. This is such a wonderful passage. In this particular passage, though, we're confronted with certain questions, which I touched on at the beginning. How is it possible for someone who is fully God to also be fully man? Could Jesus, as both fully divine and fully human, for example, could he be simultaneously, that is, at the same time, fully omnipotent, fully omniscient, or one of those other big omnis that we sometimes forget to mention, omnipresent. Now, a lot of us, when we think about Jesus, we're thinking, okay, uh, so what you have is you have like the mind of God in the body of a man. So even though he's a man in, in flesh form, uh, he's really got the mind of God, not the mind of a man, and so he's able to know all things. But what do you do about the omnipresent question? How could Jesus be everywhere present and at the same time a man? You see, we start to run into some tough questions. And as always, we need to look to the scriptures to help us to understand how we reconcile somebody who is fully divine and infinite with a flesh and blood person. It seems clear that some qualities of his eternal divine nature are just simply flat out incompatible with his human nature, such that if we were to look at it from a, just a purely surface glance, that it would be impossible for him truly to live life as a human and at the same time be fully divine with qualities such as omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. In other words, would Jesus be truly and genuinely human if in his human experience he had limitless power, knowledge, wisdom, and spatial infinite presence? I mean... How can he really identify with us if he's nothing like us other than he just has a human body? The crux of the answer to these questions, I think, Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 2. And specifically, I want to look at verses 5 to 8. This is the passage which is known as the kenosis. That is, the, the union of Christ as, a, as God with, with Christ as a man. Paul says, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We have three important ideas here. Form, equality, and emptying of himself. Paul makes clear that Christ Jesus, as the eternal Son of the Father, is fully God. He offers two expressions, each of which conveys that Jesus Christ, the man, is fully divine. 
Paul writes that Christ existed in verse 6, he says, in the form of God. Okay? And the term that he uses there is this Greek word morphe. You probably can pick it out if you're into philology and the origin of words. Morphe, metamorphosis, morphing, the transformation. We tend to think that it's the, the transformation of the outer, the outer person, but that's not what the Greek actually means. This Greek morphe refers not to the outer nature of a person, but to the essence of a person, the inner nature, not its external or outward shape. So, while the English word can convey merely the outward appearance of something, such as uh, the shape or the contour or the facade of some various object, the Greek word refers to its inner reality. So, it's talking about who God is on the inside, the essence of God. So, what Paul intends then in this understanding can be clearly seen in the way that this word is used within the context. He says that Jesus took the form, the morphe, that is the inner essence, not just the outer essence, but the inner essence, the full essence of a man, meaning he was fully man in his body and fully man in his mind, in his emotions, in his will, in his intellect. Indeed, the Gospels teach us that Jesus, growing up, was just like us, learning to walk, learning at some point to talk. He didn't necessarily tie his shoelaces, but you get the idea. He learned how to tie on his sandals. In a sense, he had to put on his pants just like you and me. He had to learn to do it one leg at a time. He had the inner essence. But Paul begins by saying that he had the inner essence of God first. Did you notice that? Verse 6, who, though he was in the morphe, that is, he had the essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the morphe of a servant, that is, of a man. So Paul says, first and foremost, he had the essence of God, the full essence of God in every respect, and then he took on the essence of a man, the full essence of a man in every respect. And in case you're wondering about this, he insists that he was equal to God. Greek word here, isa, it means perfectly equal, the same as something. He says he was in the morphe or the form or the essence of God, and he did not count equality equal, the sameness with God, as something to be grasped, but he then took on the essence of a man. How does this happen? Paul says in verse 7, that he emptied himself in order to take on the form of a servant. Now, when you and I read that, we think, okay, so what he did then was he shrugged off his deity. He, He denied his deity in order to take on his manhood. But that's not what it means. What Paul is saying there is that he emptied himself. He poured out the fullness of his deity into a man who was fully man. Again, it would take way longer than what I have time for here to get you through the nitty-gritty of the grammar of this verse. But in a sense, what Paul is saying is that he was the essence of God, that he was equal with God, but that he emptied, that is, he poured himself out into a human servant that was the essence, that is the fullness of a man. You say, well, this doesn't really help me at all, Pastor Josh. I'm still just as confused as to how all this could have started. He's fully God and fully man. I thought you said this was going to clarify things for us. Well, 
it will make it clear what happened, but it will still be a mystery. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is fully God and fully man. How does this come to be? Paul says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. An illustration might help. If you're one of those very fortunate, very, very fortunate lucky souls that can afford to buy a brand new vehicle off of the lot of the dealership, then you know what it is to have a vehicle with not a single scratch on it, not a dent anywhere in it, and above all, that thing which we love the most, you open that car door and it's that new car smell, right? Now, a number of years ago, I, uh, I was test driving used vehicles, new to me, but still used, and it happened to be a rainy day. And I went to the dealership and I was looking at uh, pickup trucks and the dealer agreed that I should be allowed to go out and test drive it, which I did. It was, brand, it, was, it was clean, not brand new, but sparkling clean as though it were brand new. It was waxed. It had a nice shine and a nice luster to it. But because it was raining that day, we drove through a series of mud puddles. And of course, it was a pickup truck. So I decided I would just take it off-road to see how it handled on rough and uncertain terrain. You'd do it too. You'd do it too. You're all sitting there judging me, but we, we would all do it. And as I drove through these mud puddles, I splattered mud onto the hood of the truck. It's okay. They have, they have like full-time washing crew there that will clean it up once you return it to the dealership. But I went back to the dealership, and as I got out, the mud covered the front end of the truck. It didn't look new anymore. Now, the truck was still fully truck, but it was covered over by mud, which was fully mud. And you're sitting there, you're looking at me, you're like, are you really going to reduce the kenosis that is the, the union of the two natures of Christ down to this? This is the best way I can think of to explain it. Can I reconcile for you how someone could know everything and yet in Matthew chapter 24 make it clear to his disciples that regarding his return, only the heavenly father knew and he didn't know? Can I reconcile that for you? How someone could be all-knowing and yet at the same time be limited in terms of what he knew regarding the second return? I cannot fully reconcile that for you, but what I can do is help you to understand that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have something very special, very wonderful taking place place in which he possessed the full range of deity, but here is the best I can explain it to you, similar to a brand new truck with all the luster and all the glory of a fresh wax job, which has been obscured to a certain extent by the coating of mud. In the same way, Jesus Christ possessed the fullness of glory, the fullness of deity. He had the full possession of deity, but in adding to himself the nature and the essence of a man, though he had the full possession of deity, he agreed to restrain or to somehow limit that deity's expression. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, possessed the full deity. He, he was in full possession of deity, but in the man that he became, he limited or in some way restrained the expression of that deity. He had it, but he chose by becoming the man, Christ Jesus, to restrain the expression of it. 
And this is good news for you and me. I'm reminded of that Christmas hymn. The night that the soul felt its worth. The King of Kings in glory became a baby because he loved you and me. He is fully man voluntarily (laughs) so that he could bear your sin and mine. That he could live in a world that was broken by sin so that he could live life like you and me in an environment that was inclined and bent towards sin yet though he himself never sinned and never committed any grievance or trespass against Almighty God. That's an incredible feat. As you and I think about our sins, we realize that there is the penalty of sin as well as the power of sin. Every crime we've ever committed deserves a just retribution from God. The wrath of God remains on all those who live in rebellion against him. The scriptures make this clear. We are at war with God and God will win that war. Indeed, the world we live in is broken as a result of our sin. We stress over the events that are happening in the world and beyond just political events, whether we have wildfires burning across our province, whether we have climate change, hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters, all of this, right down to the fact that when we try to do good, we can't do good. We find within ourselves a power which perpetually impels us to do things that we know are wrong, and yet knowing they're wrong, we can't stop ourselves and we come face to face with the reality, the consequence of those sins anytime we see someone dying. The inescapable power of sin is that it grabs a hold of all of us, it pushes all of us to disobey, and none of us will escape. Sooner or later, we will all experience the consequence, the full power of sin, which is death. We will all die. And that's what makes the coming of God such great news. The very next thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 3, if you flip back, or Romans chapter 1, if you flip back to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, he says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying there is that God has satisfied the legal demand for justice the legal demand for retribution by dying on the cross. But more than this, he has also broken the power of sin, which is the power of death. Last week, I was uh, phoned up by a brother here at the church who had uh, made a a generous contribution uh, the week prior, and that check had not gone into the bank account. Uh, the offering had been taken and uh, the man had gone home to look at his bank account and had looked to make sure that the check had been deposited, but for some reason it hadn't been deposited. And so he phoned me to ask me, what is the deal? Why are you not depositing that check? Well, I don't know anything about the money. I don't touch it. I just want to put your minds all at ease. The way that our financial giving operation works here is that almost nobody knows everything about it. 
Uh, one person knows everything about it. It's our church treasurer and bookkeeper, and I will not name that individual for you so that you won't go and harass them after the worship service today. But the reality is we try to set it up in such a way that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So I get asked questions from time to time. Hey, I uh, deposited a check. What's going on? And I'm like, I really, I truly do not know. Uh, and I'll refer you to the proper deacon and you can go talk to them. But it's fascinating because the question was, I have given money, I have made payment, but how do I know that payment is received? It's great that God comes in the flesh. It's great that he comes and he lives among us. It's mysterious. It's wonderful. We're trying to wrap our minds around it, but we're told that he died, that he died on the cross, and that this death satisfies that somehow it will atone for our souls. But how do we know that is true? And I invite you, if you want, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're just out of time, about out of time, so I'm going to have to land the plane here. That's how much good news there is in these first two verses. I really have about, I'm only halfway through my manuscript this morning. This is the precious and most glorious of all biblical truths, that Christ who died for our sins has succeeded in paying sin's penalty and conquering sin's power. And all of this is evidenced by his being raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul begins his gospel explanation to the church at Corinth in this way, Christ died for our sins, only to say just a little bit later in verse 17 that if, quote, Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. One wonders then if it was Christ's death that dealt with our sin or if it was Christ's resurrection that dealt with our sin. Indeed, it was Christ's death that dealt with our sin, but it was Christ's resurrection that proves that the payment was received by God the Father. First, the penalty. Jesus suffered the death that you and I deserve to suffer as a result of our sin and our wrongdoing. We all deserve to die, and more so to spend an eternity under the consequences of spiritual death, eternal death, which is conscious, eternal torment in hell for all of the ways we have revolted and rebelled against God. That is the penalty of our sins, which we deserve. And yet Christ, being perfectly holy and infinite, satisfied that penalty on our behalf, in our place, he satisfied God the Father's demand for justice. But more so, if you stop to consider for a moment, again, that power that sin has over us, we realize that the power is manifold. We cannot resist it. It urges us on to greed and anger and pride and lust and murder and many other horrific states of mind, many other attitudes that are wrong and actions that we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't do. But in all of these things, we do have some capacity to fight back. We know it's wrong. We resist. Ultimately, we struggle against it. And ultimately, apart from Christ, we fall into it once again. And this is all made clear in the grave. The one power which we can never fight back the one aspect of sin which we can never conquer and overcome is the power of death. 
So it's clear, sin's penalty is death, and sin's greatest power is death. It will kill us. Now back to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says Christ died for our sin. If Christ died for our sin, and sin is to us both a penalty which we can never fully pay, and a power which we can never overcome, then Christ's death for our sin must both pay sin's penalty, and if he has truly paid the penalty of sin, then it must also defeat the power of sin, which is death. So if Christ has paid the penalty for sin, we would know that that payment has been received when Christ was capable then of stepping out of the grave conquering over the power of sin, which is death. He defeats death. He overturns death so that all those who hope in him will never die. The question is, has the payment been received? And the answer comes in the empty tomb on Easter morning. Jesus satisfies and conquers the power of sin. Well, I mean, I think that's incredible news myself. We're out of time now this morning. I could go on. I really could. I'm not, I'm not joking. Sometimes preachers say, well, I could go on, but I'm going to stop there, and they really are out of material. They're just saying that. I am not. Like, I have more stuff up here, but we will revisit this next week. I think in conclusion this morning, what I'd like to just say to you, obviously we have an election taking place. Early voting has already started And the primary voting day is tomorrow. We'll find out tomorrow who has done what, who has persuaded voters of what. But I think that if you were ever to get Justin Trudeau to be perfectly honest about what it's like to be prime minister, I think what you would find is that he would tell you, if he was willing to be perfectly honest, that it's easy to campaign and it's very hard to govern. It's easy to make promises. It's even easier to find excuses for breaking those promises. When I look at Jesus, particularly at election time, I see someone who made promises and kept those promises. When we consider the election that is coming tomorrow, all of us are going to cast our ballot for whom it is that we think will bring the greatest opportunity for prosperity and blessing to our country. We're going to cast our ballot for the individual that we think will enact policies that will lead to the greatest possible flourishing for our society. There's one more detail, though, that I want to remind you of. As you think of yourself today and tomorrow as a good Canadian citizen getting ready to go to the ballot box, getting ready to cast your vote. If you would have eternal life, if you would know the greatest possible blessing and the greatest possible flourishing that there is, you must surrender to Jesus Christ as your king. In Romans chapter 1, one particular aspect of this that I was going to touch on later, but I didn't get to. Jesus is descended according to the flesh from the house of David. He is the king. Israel, as understood in Christ, 
will rule this world. Jesus is the king who comes. He is the one who will institute his benevolent rule. And there isn't a knee that won't bend. There isn't a head that won't bow. And there isn't a tongue that will not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and king of kings. I talked to you this morning about the opportunity to have eternal life, to live forever. Such a thing is so grand and marvelous. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around it. You need to understand this. Whatever ballot you cast tomorrow, you're voting for a politician. But if you would have eternal life, you must surrender to the king. You pledge allegiance to Jesus as the king from the throne and the house of David. You pledge allegiance to him as your sovereign one, the one to whom you will give unswerving and unflinching obedience. You receive Jesus as king, which means you must surrender your will to his will. And he must be the one that controls your life. And I would urge you to do it, especially after the last four weeks of listening to political candidates go on and on and debate on and on about what's best for our country, I have found that I am just sorely disappointed. Whether we're looking, I mean, you look at all all politicians, not just Canadian politicians, but I mean, you even think about President Barack Obama going back to the 2008 election in which he was at that time a senator running for his first term in office. He was at a campaign rally in Florida and as he's rallying the crowd and psyching them up, he, get, he begins to advocate for a policy of climate, you know, an awareness of climate change and instituting policies that will reduce or somehow uh, prevent climate change. And he makes the statement as he's rallying the crowd, he says, this is the moment. If you elect me, this is the moment that we'll look back to 10, 20 years from now as the moment that our nation and our world began to heal. Well, here we are 12 years later. It doesn't look that wholesome. Jesus Christ says that he has come to take away our sickness and our disease and our infirmities. You look at other politicians, Justin Trudeau, 2015. This This is what he says upon election. He says, my friends, I want you to know Canada is back. And saying that, he's implying that somehow this was a country that was to be the source and the fountain of blessings and that this country had sort of lost its way with conservatives, but by voting for Trudeau, now it had rediscovered itself. and Now it could once again be the source of blessings and fruitfulness for the whole world. And yet we look at Jesus Christ who says, there's no country on this earth that is full of blessings, that is full of fruitfulness. There is a king coming with his kingdom. And he says in the beginning of the Gospels, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Every politician benefits financially from their time in office. Jesus Christ died for his people. Every politician has homes Locally, in their local writing, as well as homes and, you know, out to govern out in Ottawa. But Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was in it completely, truly, and fully for you and me. If we don't like our politicians, just wait a few years and we can have the opportunity to vote them out. Some of us are looking forward to doing that tomorrow. 
But when it comes to Jesus Christ, this is the one with whom we will have to deal for all of eternity. There is no voting him out. When we consider all of the campaign promises and all of the rhetoric, what we realize is that time and again, we are dealing with politicians. But when we look at Jesus Christ, we see not a politician, but a king. I would urge you, if you're here today, surrender your life to the one true king who can save you. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. God, I pray this morning that we would be strengthened in our faith through once again contemplating and looking at the son who is the gospel that we would rejoice in the good news that because of what he did for us on the cross, we will be set free and live forever. And I pray, God, this morning that as we are gathered here, that for those of us who have trusted in him, our faith would once again be strengthened, that we would not look at current events or political happenings and be dismayed, but be reassured that the true king reigns and is reigning and is in control over all that is happening and will bring out of it the good which he desires. But Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have never trusted in you. Help them, Lord, to see their need for you this morning. Help them to surrender their lives to your king, to Jesus. Help them to see that they will never escape death. They will never be free. They will never be at peace until they know Christ as Lord. Do that this morning, we pray, God, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to sing, I Surrender All. And as this church sings, if you're here this morning and you have never publicly confessed Jesus Christ as your king, the scripture calls you to do that. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, we invite you to come forward this morning. This is the time in which we pledge our allegiance and our citizenship to a heavenly country and a heavenly king. So we want to give you this opportunity. If God is speaking to your heart this morning about your need to accept forgiveness through Christ, to be reconciled with God the Father because of what Jesus did on the cross, we invite you to come this morning. Church, would you please stand as we sing?